Production music is by the Beverly Crushers. You can find them on Bandcamp, and that's from uh, their new album, Sick Bay. Hi, and welcome to Academic Trek, a podcast about academic research in Star Trek. My name is Daniel, and I'm your host. Garcia is our guest today, so welcome, Greg. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's great to speak to you. I'm just going to read out um, your bio that you sent over to me just to give people an idea of what you're all about. Um, so here we go. Greg Garcia is a professional historian, inner city public school teacher and lifelong Star Trek fan. As a public historian, he has researched and designed museum exhibits all across his home state of Oregon, including the Capitol building. As a teacher, Garcia has designed culturally responsive social studies curriculum for both the Oregon Historical Society and for private use for his Teachers Pay Teachers store, Mano Koa. Koa? Enterprises. Garcia currently teaches both Advanced Placement US History and Advanced Placement Psychology at Benjamin Franklin High School in Portland, Oregon. After the Advancement Placement tests, Garcia spends the last six weeks of the school year giving his students practical experience in the field of professional history by having them construct narratives on any topic they choose and presenting them to the public at the end of the year. Garcia is the co-founder of the Teachers Talking Trek YouTube channel, in which teachers examine the Star Trek universe through their unique lenses of academic expertise. He also runs his own YouTube channel under the handle Trek Historian, where he hopes to model how students can share their historical interpretation skills via the internet. So my first quick question is, um, could you briefly explain what advanced placement is for our non-US listeners? Certainly. So in the United States, how it works is, um, are you familiar with the SAT scores, uh, the SAT tests rather? Yeah, that, okay, that's so, what they do for um, college entrance and stuff, isn't it? Right. So the same company that does the SAT tests also does something called advanced placement. And how it works is at the high school level, students have the opportunity to register for these classes that are supposed to be college prep. And the goal is to prepare students for the advanced placement test that covers the equivalent of an entire year's worth of entry level college, um, entry level college prerequisites for that topic. For example, um, advanced placement U.S. history covers the American equivalent of history 201, 202, and 203. Psychology um, covers a whole year's worth of um, introductory psychological um, courses and how it works is <laughs> and this is kind of silly kind of insane right now because here in my district we're doing things distance learning style um, and trying to teach entire year-long classes and semesters and it's it's a logistical mess so I have to laugh a little bit but uh, um, we have to it's a mad dash to get the kids to take the test in May. It's the first two weeks of May are when um, the advanced placement class, um, the advanced placement tests rather happen. And the great, the, the test is graded on a scale of one to five and three or better get students eligible for uh, college credit. Oh, fantastic. That's great. Thank you. So um, my first sort of general question, the question which is becoming my, my stock first question is why Trek? Well, Star Trek has played a profound role in my life and cognitive development. Um, I was born with an intense form of Asperger's syndrome for the younger generation. That's autistic spectrum disorder. Um, communication was extremely difficult for me and sensory overload was almost omnipresent. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with that term, Sensory overload is the term that's used to describe when sights, sounds, and sensations overpower the nervous system, triggering fight or flight. And growing up, especially in, the, in my younger years, um, my mother would tell me once I would have a fight or flight response when we went to the, the local grocery store and the frozen food um refrigerators the condensers would turn on and i could hear that when we were going into the uh the store and i would have panic attacks so 
that's what happened there. Communication was extremely difficult for me. And I began communicating by studying and mimicking Patrick Stewart's voice patterns on Star Trek The Next Generation. That was one of my mom's favorite shows. And from there, I studied how Star Trek characters handle various situations. I mimicked the way they communicated. Picard was, and as a teacher now, still is my go-to for mimicking behavior and voice patterns. And for some reason, the writing on Star Trek through the lenses of characters like Mr. Spock, Data, and Seven of Nine made all forms of human behavior from the more complex to the most mundane really accessible to me. And I see the world through the lens of Star Trek. And from that understanding, later Star Wars, James Bond, and Arnold Schwarzenegger movies as well. Um, If there's interest in this, I'm beginning to document this as I keep talking with students over the years about our shared experiences being on the spectrum. I feel the need to document that. I've pitched this to StarTrek.com six different times, and they've turned it down every single time. So um, that's the beauty of YouTube. You can self-publish. You can get your, your message out and see what happens from there. I call this mechanism my social matrix. The first video that I um, posted on this is available on my Trek Historian channel if you're interested. And yeah, that, that's why Star Trek for me. Fantastic. Thank you. So talking of uh, YouTube, you have, uh, you're one of the co-founders of Teachers Talking Trek. Could you talk a mm-hmm. little bit about how that formed and maybe what's the idea behind it really? So Teachers Talking Trek is a public education, multidisciplinary YouTube channel started by some colleagues of mine and myself. Um, Our ranks currently include an English language arts teacher um, going by the nickname Scholar Beta, um, a physics teacher, a special education instructor, and me. And pre-pandemic, what would happen is we would go to science fiction conventions, being in the Pacific Northwest, Rose City and Emerald City are the big ones. And we would get in and host panels and facilitate a lesson for attendees to participate in and giving it a sort of science fiction and fantasy spin on that. Um, For years, Scholar Beta, my um, English language arts contributor, had had been pushing this idea of teaching kids how to do podcasts. And of all of us together, I really gravitated towards this because I was like, you know, if we could make a podcast, teach kids how to make historical podcasts, that's a form of public history. That's informing the public on a topic and perhaps making something non-academic academic through historical interpretation. So um, that's how it started in the pandemic. Okay, so we we had talked about doing this for several years, and the pandemic finally gave us the incentive with all of us cooped up in our houses to invest in the proper equipment and and pursue it. And our goal, given that we are in an inner city school, is to make it as accessible as possible, try to lower the overhead because video production and podcasting, especially video production as a quote-unquote rich person's game, So um, Scholar Beta and I are going through this and testing how we can make this accessible for for traditionally underserved students. So that's how that came about. Um, We just finished a review, Scholar Beta and I, on the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation through the lenses of, in his uh, area, because he teaches a uh, science fiction literature class, English language arts, and I do the social studies angle. Um, We're discussing when we get to the more technical ones, bringing in our physics colleague um, for his perspective. And um, but everybody's all over the place now because of current events. So that's that's where we're at. Fantastic. Okay, so, um, yeah, talking about maybe um, how you use Star Trek in your lessons. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that, how you've applied Star Trek to uh, different aspects of teaching? I'm that's a good question. And with that said, there is something for those of you who are listening who might be um, public educate uh, public yeah, public school educators. Um, there's something in secondary education and also to a certain degree primary education called culturally responsive teaching. That's a method. And 
Culturally responsive education indicates that effective lessons employ at least one quality of the following here, student relevance, student voice, gamification, and storifying your content. And Star Trek's concepts really lend themselves very well to um, culturally responsive teaching. In terms of uh, relevance, we use pop culture archetypes and references um, rather than strict adherence to the textbook. With my AP U.S. history students, to get them to understand how you can make a thesis and defend or critique a thesis, um, I actually do this lesson back when we could go to conventions, I actually modeled this lesson where um, we take Stephen Hawking's thesis on alien contact and how he cites um, historical evidence to say we shouldn't meet alien life because based on human history, um, when you have two different technologically um, based civilizations meeting each other, the less technologically based society is always destroyed. He specifically references the Spanish um, meeting the Aztec, and he says, we're the Aztecs in this scenario. That is a valid argument. That's a valid thesis. But if you take a look at other historical evidence, um, there is a counter argument to that, and that lends itself to Star Trek with the, uh, the French. The French operate very much like the Vulcans and the uh, Federation in Star Trek, where they're more um, collaborative. They work together. They share technology. And getting students to understand that through those kinds of archetypes where you have War of the Worlds on one side and Star Trek on the other, kids can really visualize how you can construct um, arguments that are valid. So there's that. Student voice. Um, At the end of the advanced placement U.S. history curriculum, it takes about seven months to do, and then we spend a full month planning for the big test. We go from Columbus to literally this year. And when we get to this year, um, there's an assignment I have my students do for um, extra credit where I tell them, okay, we've covered almost 520 years of history. What's the next 520 years going to look like? And there are certain historical analytical tools that they develop. I call it Persia, politics, economics, religion, social trends, innovation, meaning technology and science and art. So of those Persia factors, which three will change the most between now and the 25th century or the 26th century? And a lot of students, especially um, the sci-fi and Star Trek oriented students, really get in on that and they write their own Star Trek fanfic and they have that be the assignment. Um, My wife and I went to the Star Trek 50th anniversary celebration um, five years ago in Hollywood and somebody told me there that Portland, Oregon has the highest percentage in the United States of Star Trek fans per capita. And And I think there's something to be said about that because it resonates really well. Um, gamification we have um star trek really lends itself well to alternate realities and parallel um, the mirror universe is the one that comes to mind very easily um we have a game called cold war commander where students go through 10 dilemmas of the cold war and depending on their solution um it follows tabletop rules so like I call it, I explain it to parents and I can say this because I'm in Portland, which is more liberal than other parts of my state. It's history meets Dungeons and Dragons, where you come up with a solution and then you roll a D6 and see what the outcome is. Um, So getting students to visualize that is very sci-fi Star Trek-ish. And then using Star Trek episodes in terms of storification. When I get into Freudian psychoanalysis, the original series episode, The Enemy Within, is a really good episode in terms of uh, distinguishing and examining the id, ego, superego. And the reason why I picked that over other um, pop culture elements is The Enemy Within really, it's a defense of the Freudian id. Because Kirk's will, if you want to get philosophical, it's his Nietzschean will, gives Kirk his strength. When you compare the message of enemy within 
to other forms of Freudian psychoanalytical literature, Fight Club comes to mind. The it is something that you need to control. It's antagonistic and it's something that you it's it's evil. It's inherently evil. What's so great about the enemy within is it starts out that way. And then it takes a twist where Kirk's impulses, his strength, his power of decision all come from his id. So in and of itself, it's not evil. It just needs to be controlled. Um, that's really effective, uh, a really effective way of getting students to examine um, Freud's divisions of the mind. And then also through the philosophy of infinite diversity and infinite combinations, there's activities that I've invented. All of all these things, by the way, are available on Teachers Pay Teachers if you're interested. Monokoa Enterprises, which is a reference to my Hawaiian heritage, which we could discuss maybe at the end. But um, there's little activities that we do um, called historical theaters, which are intentionally designed to be multiple perspective, including perspectives that textbooks, American history textbooks tend to overlook certain communities and in the philosophy of infinite diversity and infinite combinations. We include those perspectives to any given issue, ranging from um, the Salem witch trials to the election of 2000. So Star Trek is the foundation of everything we do, and it lends itself very well to where I am, because depending on who you ask, it's we have more Trekkies here in Portland than anywhere else in the United States, or so I'm told. Really? That's very interesting. Do you know if there's a reason for that, or if it's just uh, a blip, a strange... Uh... Um, if I were to guess, uh, the the culture, the, the cosmopolitan culture of Portland compared to the rest of the state... I have lived in every other corner of my state and it's extremely conservative, but you come to Portland and it's comparatively diverse. Granted, it's not as diverse as Los Angeles or definitely not New York, but it's because of the culture, because of the political orientation, if you will, it seems to lend itself very well to Star Trek. And um, if you look at the earlier promotional material, um, from the original series, I have a uh, a parent who is an archivist at the local news station. And when I brought up the public history project thing, because I informed parents about that, he, he brought up to me that he has in his work um, one of the first recordings from Leonard Nimoy um, as he was promoting Spock. And the earliest promotional material for Star Trek was here in Oregon, Medford, I, my uh, cousin lives in Medford, which is right down towards California, only like 20 minutes from the California border. Um, Leonard Nimoy was the grand marshal for uh, that parade when Star Trek went on the air in 1966, 1967. So he did some promotional material down there. And then he came up here to the local um, news station, KGW, which is the NBC um, affiliate. And did a lot of talk shows there. So maybe that has something to do with it too. Interesting. So like a bit of a history then. So talking mm -hmm. of um, history and talking particularly as uh, you mentioned a minute ago and as you mentioned in your bio as a public historian, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what you see a public history is. What, what do you mean by that term? So public history is the act of using historical content and skills and taking something that isn't academic and making it academic to get people involved in the historical process. History, at least in the United States, at least here with the people I talk to, history is either something people really like or really hate. It's dates and dead people for the ones that really like it and trivia and stuff like that. And for those who don't, it's dates and dead people and there's no engaging qualities of history there. How you get public history, what makes public history work rather is, as I said, you take something that is non-academic and you make it academic. And the best examples of those are Ken Burns documentaries here in the United States. You have a documentarian who goes in and examines various non-academic topics. Baseball um, comes to mind uh, most prominently. That's the one Ken Burns is most known for. And also, to give a little joke, back in the days when the History Channel actually did history, instead of devoting their time to discovering the Loch Ness Monster, you would have things like... Um, 
and in their defense, this kind of programming is coming back where the history of comic books, uh, the history of Star Trek, that's one, that's one that came up um, prominently too, because for the show's, the series 40th anniversary, they did that special where Leonard Nimoy did a retrospective on the series and then they auctioned off um, materials from the Paramount Ball at Christie's, that sort of thing. Getting the public interested if it's something a pub, the public would like to pay money to see and you can how, somehow make that academic, that's public history. So it can be anything. In the context of what my kids do, um, my students create public history narratives pertaining to almost anything. Um, <laughs> you have manga. Lots of students do the history of manga and explain how going back to my um, my Persia tools, politics, economics, religion, social trends, innovation, and art, those kinds of factors. They pick three Persia factors that most directly impact that topic. You can do that. Um, I cut my teeth um, right after graduate school. The first project I ever did was the history of baseball, so sports history. And through those lenses, you can explore things like in, in the case of baseball, especially segregation, um, urbanization, those sorts of things. So that's how public history works. Um, and Star Trek, especially because of the passion of the fandom, really lends itself to public history because you can throw out something, make a thesis about it, and then have people participate in either confirming that thesis going back to what we said with Hawking or refuting it. And that's how you get people involved in the process there too. Okay. So do you think there's any particular episodes that come to mind for you that are really great for applying the Persia idea, for instance, um, to Star Trek? Oh, definitely. Um, there are so many... So I, I got a big old list here that I have um, in preparation for our interview today. There are so many pitches that take various forms of Persia and various Persia factors affect whether these shows were either agreed to and developed or flat out denied. There are nine different and documented pitches for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Nine. I'm working on one of them. It should go online uh, this Wednesday. Uh, it's the craziest one of all. Um, it involves Scotty wrecking the universe. It involves black holes, Scotty, and Hitler. Wow. So it's kind of yeah. It, I I looked at this because I was trying to find a lost trek to do because um when the semester ended I had to take a hiatus and then I was going through my materials and I went yeah th we're doing this one that this one is flat out insane. But in terms of how Persia works, um. The first Lost Trek I ever did was Assignment Earth, um, because many people know that, and if you don't, now you do, um, that Assignment Earth was a backdoor pilot for a spinoff that was supposed to be more affordable going into economics. It was still Star Trek, but more affordable because it was Earthbound, and it involved Gary Seven and uh, Roberta Lincoln and the other ISIS going together and... Um, solving problems on planet earth but in a star trek science fiction sort of way so it definitely had that going for it economically um hope ship um that's another spinoff of the same era that didn't get as far as assignment earth um but i was looking at that and roddenberry wanted to cash in again with economics on um general hospital that was his big deal, and he wanted to make his own general hospital. The fact that Majel was um, an actress on that show probably had something to do with it. And I see that one in that in that video. I, I, if they fully went the general hospital route, I, I don't think it would go very far. But if you made Hope Ship less general hospital and more MASH, which for those of you who may not know, c covered... Um, army doctors in the Korean War, but they were really criticizing Vietnam. If you did something like that, getting more politics, more social commentary there, I think that one would go very well. But as I pointed out in that video, the economics aren't there because by the time you get to season three of the original series, it's all gone. Hmm. Um, 
plots had to revolve around the same sets that were already created. Uh, the Tholian web is a big example of that, where um, they come across the Defiant, which looks exactly like the Enterprise. That saves money on a model and money on sets. And the, the famous one, the Enterprise incident, where a Romulan, and I use that in quotes, three Romulan vessels come up and they're actually Klingon ships. So it's, it's funny stuff taking a look at that. So it all connects. It all interconnects. And because in addition to being a piece of art, um, television is also a business, economics plays a major role and how these come together. Okay, fantastic. So uh, you mentioned the Lost Treks. Could you just uh, let people know where they, they can find those? Certainly. Um, they are on my um, YouTube channel, Trek Historian. Um, what we're dealing with right there is Lost Treks. I'm also dabbling into a little bit of psychology. One of the things that I'm looking for, um, looking forward to doing is doing a psychological profile of characters. And the first one I want to start with is Picard and whether he has PTSD in first contact. Um, Cause I think once you examine it from that lens, a lot of things make better sense, but there's controversy and rightfully so over how Picard reacts in that movie versus previous experiences. And there is a plausible, not empirically concrete but there is a plausible reason for why he acts differently in that um outing and differently in previous ones but yes uh trek historian all that's available on youtube fantastic okay um so you also say that lost treks is designed to be participatory mm -hmm. what if you can talk a little bit about that how you you aim to do that and what you've done to achieve that so how this works is this works two ways um, it's participatory in the sense that we talk about what, why, okay, so how the show, movie, or episode was written, what it would have entailed, and why it was canceled. Then there's a little segment of every episode called Across the Multiverse, where we create, going back to the storification um, concept of culturally responsive teaching, we create a, a new reality. We kind of do a thought experiment in which we imagine, okay, this, this episode as written got greenlit. How long would it last if it's a television show? How much money would it make if it were uh, a movie? Or how would it have affected the broader Trek universe if it were an episode? Um. And that, that's how it works from there. In terms of um, Assignment Earth, I gave it one to two seasons. And a lot of people respond with, I think the show would have been great. Well, I agree that with that. In terms of quality, I would love to see that too. But how many seasons would you give it? Taking into account that by the time, assuming this would actually be made, Assignment Earth would have premiered in 1969. And... It was borrowing from so many other different spy movies, uh, spy shows, also movies, but more accurately shows of the time. The Man from UNCLE, um, Mission Impossible, I Spy, all those sorts of shows. And those shows, with the exception of Mission Impossible, were wrapping up by 1969. Mission ends in the early 70s. So using that as evidence and you analyzing that trend, how far would Star Trek last? And that's how you get the discussion there. Another thing that I use to make it more participatory is the finish the pitch or pitch the pilot challenge that I've just added to the videos. And this new um, video that's coming out on Wednesday um, talks about that Scotty wrecks the universe movie. Um, and it's fairly fleshed out, but there are a few key story details that are missing from the pitch. So what you got to do, what I model, because as teachers, you always model, I create my own version of what a finished pitch would look like. And then the audience, by typing up and posting in the comments below, put their finished pitch in the comments too. So those two sorts of things make it participatory. One is a little bit more academic than the other. The other is more creative. But either way, if it stimulates thought, 
If it stimulates creativity, stimulates academic discussion, it works. I've done my job as a teacher if we get to that point. Fantastic. Excellent. Okay, so got another question, sort of going a little bit off the topic of teaching and stuff. But um, so how are you enjoying New Trek? How are you enjoying Picard and Lower Decks and Discovery, etc.? Are you loving it? Are you not loving it? What's your thoughts? So... And I'm actually going to be talking about this in my um, in my Make It So Autism video series. I'm going to get into this in more detail. But Star Trek Nemesis gutted me in so many ways. That was my mo- That was my Phantom Menace to use a Star Trek reference. Yeah. That movie offended me so much. And so badly, it viscerally hurt me because there are two characters there on whom I based all of my behavior, all of my communication skills, and one is off and the other is spinning his wheels. Data's killed, that, that hurt physically, and then everything else starts petering out. Um, from that point and the fact that I was in high school and... Um, being a Star Trek fan in public high school was not popular back then. I started branching out um, what I call my social matrix, studying characters and mimicking their behaviors um, to other franchises. James Bond was one. Um, around that time, Pierce Brosnan was Bond, so I started studying Pierce Brosnan. And Pierce Brosnan's Bond became to me what Picard and Data were back then. And I kind of closeted my Trek fandom for a little bit. And J.J. Abrams' 2009 movie showed me that it was okay to get that that Trek fandom out in the public. And then when my wife and I moved to uh, Portland and we noticed the, the massive proliferation of Star Trek fans, it wasn't closeted anymore. I like... the I will always be indebted to... The J.J. Abrams 2009 show, I mean movie rather, for pushing Star Trek into the mainstream and allowing me to use those kinds of references to explain my thought processes. Um, Into Darkness, I don't like Into Darkness. If I'm watching a movie and I can predict the dialogue before it happens... They should not be paying the writers to write. They should be paying people like us to write the dialogue if you're going to go to that. And there's a specific scene in that movie, and I think if you've seen Into Darkness, you know what I'm talking about, where the instant Spock said, uh, Kirk says, how's our ship? Almost everything else about that scene is predictable. So I, I'm not a fan of Into Darkness but um, Beyond has a special place in my heart. Okay, it's interesting. Um, there was a... Okay, so that, that Star Trek 50th anniversary um, celebration I mentioned, the first time in my life I ever used a hashtag was for that... Okay, so what they ended up doing was they had some sort of social media contest where it's... Sh- the question was, how does Star Trek make you go beyond? And at that point, I started documenting very in a very small scale, nothing really big, how Star Trek made me verbal on the spectrum, how Star Trek um, helps me interact with people, uh, for better or worse. I'll never forget one of these times I, uh, I was at a water park and... Uh, um, something had happened the, the, the water, I was in the wave pool and the wave pool stopped making its waves. Cause that's how it worked. And I remember going around and asking people just like the doctor did in caretaker, excuse me, can you explain what has transpired? He can get away with that because he's a hologram. When a 13 year old is going around and asking that, 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 that doesn't, that something rings awkwardly there. So with that said, being able to document that and being able to explain that and explaining how I use Star Trek in the classroom and 
it was kind of a bittersweet thing because they ended up telling us, congratulations, you and a plus one, which was my wife, get to go down to the Paramount lot for Star Trek Beyond. And also the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And I'm like, okay, I like the 50th part. I'm not so good. I don't like Star Trek Beyond because that Beastie Boys commercial. I blame Sabotage for completely derailing the Kelvin universe. I do. (laughs) Because it's one of those things where it pushes it too far into the mainstream and not in a way that it doesn't add much to it. But that being said, once I got there, and once we interacted with people, they had um, Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, and um, Carl Urban there. Um, one of my fondest memories ever is coming home on the bus from that sort of thing, and a kid asked his grandmother, who was also there, um, if he could have my autograph because he thought I was Carl Urban, and the kid... The, the kid's guardian went, no, Timmy, that's not him. Movie stars don't ride the bus. <laughs> so, they do um, in Star Trek, the, um, the voyage home, don't they? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> but um, that's the, uh, once I saw that, once I got involved, once I talked to the people, um, the director, Justin, oh God, I'm blanking on his name. Yeah, so I'm uh, Justin Lin, Justin Lin, Fast and Furious. I was extremely incredulous about having somebody whose credits include Fast and Furious be involved in Star Trek. But once you got to talk with him and hear this story about how having that, you know, having the kind of upbringing he had working in the family business and how watching Star Trek after a hard day's work, you know, was a release and stuff like that. That made me really excited uh, for watching Star Trek Beyond. And generally speaking, it's my favorite Kelvin um, timeline movie. So I like that. In terms of the shows, I am okay with Discovery Season 1, generally. I, I, I think it had some good things, some interesting things going for it. Um, there are a few, as a historian, there are a few red flags in terms of how viable this show is, um, in terms of its financing, in terms of its ratings, the fact that CBS All Access now, or soon to be Paramount Plus is not releasing viewership numbers, whereas other streaming services are, is a red flag. The fact that Star Trek Picard was streamed through Amazon and not Netflix is another red flag. But in terms of Discovery Season 1, it had some good things going for it. I generally liked the um, the narrative structure going into the AM Persia, how they tried to make it differently and different than previous Trek and how it's a... Um, the, narr- the, the main protagonist is not the captain, but... The first officer, then a crewman. Love that. Certain aspects of um, season one episodes I liked a lot. Um, The episode involving Harry Mudd, something to the effect of a little magic to make the sane man go mad or something like that. When I first, when I saw the first act of that episode, I went, oh my gosh, it's cause and effect that next generation episode all over again. And... The one thing I don't like about that episode, the Next Generation episode, is that it's tedious. You see the same thing over and over and over again. And it works great when you watch it the first time, but then repeat viewings, it becomes profoundly tedious. And to their credit, the the Discovery equivalent of that, the title is way too long to to repeat, is... um, is an improvement artistically and um, stylistically over next generation where my, uh, my affection for um, discovery falls off is um, season two and how you have these seven existential threats to the universe and they completely lose track of it. It has some good stuff that that new Eden episode, great trick. And then it nosedives. And then at the end of it, my perspective is, okay, 
in the interest of infinite diversity and infinite combinations, this doesn't work for me. But that doesn't mean it doesn't work for other people. I have the same uh, philosophy for lower decks. I love Rick and Morty. Um, I used to be, I, I dabbled in journalism right out of college, and Rick reminds me of my copy editor at that time. Cantankerous, all these sorts of things. Love the guy. I love that character. I love Rick and Morty. I love Star Trek in the same way I love Korean barbecue and ice cream. Do I want Korean barbecue ice cream? No, not, not, <laughs> not particularly, no. But again, it's one of those things. In the interest of IDIC, it, I don't particularly subscribe to it, but if you enjoy it, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. The one thing, the one show I cannot abide because of my personal relationship with this character is Picard. Okay. So um, in terms of its politics, it could have been handled. I actually rewrote the show because of pandemics and stuff like that. I rewrote the first 10 episodes. Um, I'm actually thinking about making video um, essays on them, debating them. But it all goes back to the fact that Okay, so I'm, I recently made a video called The Secret, the Three Secrets of Star Trek Success. Yep, and I sure. talk about those three factors going back to Persia being affordable budgets, signature storytelling, and the fans. I, may, I specifically made that thesis because what's happening now is exactly the opposite and con contrary to what has made Star Trek last for 50 years. Budgets are really big. I loved Star Trek Beyond, but the fact that Star Trek 4 can't get made, the financing is not there, is, is, is something that needs to be discussed. Because Paramount, and one of my um, Trek thoughts, or what they're called, another Trek thought video that I'm making is an open letter to to Paramount saying, you know, you, you got a mess right now. And part of that going back to politics has to do with, you know, CBS and Viacom being two separate entities. And yet somehow, thank you, Sumner Redstone, Star Trek qualifies for Paramount in a certain way. And then television, it's something else entirely alternate title, franchise, whatever. How do you reconcile all this and how do you move forward? Simon Pegg recently said that the suits at Paramount are souring on Star Trek because it doesn't make Marvel money. Okay. And so he, he did say that. Um, so how do you retool? How do you lower the budgets so that you can write to Star Trek fans and make product uh, um, a profit there? And that ties into the storytelling. The higher the risk, the more you have to cover your bets for safe storytelling. And unfortunately, the safer that you go, the more generic it becomes. You can't take wild risks. Um, Murray Leader, your, your for, um, a, a guest of yours, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to his your interview with him, his episode, because he talks about Star Trek following prestige uh, storytelling. And that is a really good description of it. Um, my, as a Star Trek fan, my my rub is um, Star Trek always set trends; it never followed trends, or it was less likely to follow trends. So um, that's my deal there. And because of big budgets affecting the storytelling, the fans, um, the fans are fractured. And all these three things form together and, and push Star Trek away from the secrets that made it successful. Uh, that th Those are my perspectives on that. Um, I, I'm optimistic, though, that things can change. They keep saying that uh, Strange New Worlds um, is going to be optimistic. Um, that was the key word they used in their announcement. I got a really strong, especially with Picard, a really strong Game of Thrones vibe, especially with mm -hmm. what happened to Icheb. Um, and that ties back to um, that really 
well done thesis that the um mr leader pointed out about star trek following the the prestige so-called platinum era of america uh, of television storytelling so uh, i'm i'm optimistic it's just um right now we're in a bad spot okay fantastic so putting your futurist hat on maybe what do you think do you think discovery will last do you th- what do you think is going to happen do you think they're Sort of, there's a proliferation at the moment, and seems to be a real effort to 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 have many types of Star Trek. Do you think that's going to continue, or do you think maybe it's a slightly um, dead end road? Maybe the one thing. Okay, so I'm looking at all the shows they're announcing, and I'm reminded of the late Berman era. And a lot of analysts who take a look at Star Trek during the late 90s, early 2000s era say that Star Trek was undercut because of oversaturation. There was too much Star Trek and um, the public got bored with it. Now, I would argue that the entertainment landscape now is significantly different than the entertainment landscape of the late 90s and um, early 2000s. So with that in mind, um, my fear of oversaturation is ebbed a little bit because what was successful in the, in the Berman era doesn't necessarily directly translate to successful now. If you get so many different viewers, um, certain channels um, definitely illustrate this. Case in point, my wife and I last night were watching, because we have nothing else to watch, a Travel Channel series where they try to find Bigfoot. Okay. That, under normal circumstances, especially under 1960s era, um, 1960s era entertainment values or Nielsen ratings, that show wouldn't last a season. It's lasted two. (laughs) And um, so in terms of the specs, in terms of the numbers, you can have, as long as the fan base is there, and there are definite steps that need to be taken, there are amends that need to be made regarding the fan base. Um, When you go out and say, I made this choice to upset fans, which is uh, what Michael Chabon said in, in reference to Picard you are not doing yourself any favors there. And if you try to capitalize on current socio-political discourse, that only widens the chasm. So that is where it, it begins and ends with the fans in that regard, because the finances need to be fixed. You can't make Star Trek four because there's no financial backing to make it work. And by fixing the finances, you can, you can change your storytelling so that it it feeds back into the fans. And the trick now is going to be how do you, using the right kind of budget, make a story that unifies the fans and bring us back to that, that perfect trifecta of what made Star Trek last as long as it has. So um, I have some ideas. <laughs> I uh, In terms of my commentaries and my, my Trek thoughts, um, I'm curious to see what other thoughts are, but that would be the key for the future of Star Trek is pull back a little bit, um, lower the budgets so that you can um, make your storytelling tighter and take more risks and have those risks play to a fan base that will subscribe and pay off the lower budgets because that's where the threshold is you do i, I love the jj abrams the first jj abrams movie but that's the point where they went for mainstream because you have the bigger the budget the bigger the risk and so you cover your bets by um making it appeal to everyone if you take a step back now now that star trek is under the same um corporate roof now now that um cbs viacom is a thing um, I'm optimistic on that score, and I hope that Strange New Worlds is a good step in that direction. Okay, fantastic. Well, that's a great, a great way to end, I suppose. But before we do end, um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Anything about sort of your teaching? Anything that you think that I've maybe missed in the in the discussion? Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you on this. This has been a highlight of the last 
well, it's been the highlight of the year so far, and it's only February. But uh, <laughs> and if if you are interested in um, if you are interested in reading those Star Trek Picard rewrites, um, I'm on fan fiction under Send Me In Coach, and also Archive of Our Own. Um, I am planning on ramping up my Lost Treks. One of the things that I'm planning on doing is showing students how to make these sorts of public history videos in May. Um, students will begin research on that and we will be creating a website. Usually we turn the school into a museum, but now we're doing a website in May. Um, being that I am Hispanic, Latino, but also um, uh, native Hawaiian, I am planning a um, video series in May, which in the United States is um, Pacific Islander Native Hawaiian Heritage Month. And I'm going to be talking about the need for that kind of representation. Star Trek has borrowed from um, Native Hawaiian culture um, from time to time, but they've never included a character. And well, being that it took them almost 50 years to make a Hispanic Latino character and put him on Star Trek, um, in the case of Colbert and Chris Rios, Hopefully we'll be able to speed up um, that waiting time and be able to include a, a Native Hawaiian um, character there. Because I think that that is something that my whole life has been gnawing at me. And hopefully that can be changed. So that those are the, the previews of coming attractions from my, from my point. Um, if you are interested in my um, Teachers Pay Teachers lessons they are available on um, teachers pay teachers under the store store monocoa enterprises um, monocoa is a reference to the great great white shark which is um, my family's spiritual guardian if you've ever seen the movie moana um, what the stingray is for her family is what the the great white shark is for my family so um, monocoa enterprises also star trek reference um is there and I am so thrilled to to be on the show and um, I'm looking forward to having a broader discussion with all of you. Fantastic. Okay, so just last thing, um, Twitter, etc. Have you got Twitter handles? Oh yes. Um, Teachers talking Trek right now is the only Twitter handle I have, um, and we share that with my other colleagues, and that's at Trek Teachers, and. Um, I'm debating branching out on my own and making uh, my own Twitter handle. Um, that that'll be there will be an announcement on teachers uh, on Twitter. Too many T words these days. Trek Twitter <laughs> teachers talking. Yeah. yeah, all those sorts of things. Um, there'll be an announcement there. But I am one of being the co-founder. I do have access to the teachers talking Trek account. And if you want to contact me through that social media, you can. And of course, Trek historian on YouTube too. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Greg. Thank you for your time. Thank Thanks you. That. I enjoyed that. And um, yeah, speak to you soon. Looking forward to it.